0: I think what really summed it up for me was leading a uh, sales seminar and doing what's called a Myers-Briggs uh, thing. Like, you know, what color is your parachute? What are you going to be when you grow up? I said, you know, if you're a BB, uh, you're a green beret, you're going to go out and get it. And that's what I really want. And then if you're a XYZ, you know, you're a B student, B minus student. And, you know, if I can hire someone better, I'm going to do that. And if you're an MM, you know, you should really be an elementary school principal. You, you have no reason to be working here. And I looked down and I was an M.M. And two years later, I was an elementary school principal.
1: Hello and welcome to What's Next. My name is Joel. This is my show. I'm a filmmaker, a husband, I'm a father, Mostly, I am relentlessly unsatisfied with where I'm at. I'm constantly thinking about what to do next and what's the best use of my time and energy and potential. How do I, as a father, contribute to creating a world that I want to leave behind for my kids? It's actually kind of hard <laughs> to do that. It's, it's hard to live that kind of life. And so that's what this show is about. I'm going to talk to those kinds of people, people who are living those kinds of lives, how they became who they are, the mistakes they made along the way, the things that they learned, how they make decisions, and hopefully learn some things about myself. Just getting this show off the ground for me was, a, was incredibly difficult. I would like to think of myself as a self-starter, but this has taken much longer than it needed to and continues to... Uh, just just be a battle, even though I love it. I, even though it's something that I enjoy immensely. Interviewing people and thinking about sharing these conversations is exciting. But for whatever reason, when it came time to do the little details, it was just overwhelming and distract myself with anything, whether it was the cell phone or doing the dishes or the laundry. But a year and a half later, after the initial intent to do this, making a million excuses finally here we are welcome to what's next (laughs) i hope you like it today on this first episode of what's next is a conversation with pat mccabe pat is a one-time cable sports television executive who was living what many would call the dream Uh, but he gave it all up to become a headmaster at uh, grade school He is now a co-founder of a nonprofit organization called Ready to Succeed, and they're helping foster youth in L.A. and beyond. Very generous guy and generous with his time and his thoughts, and I I just really enjoyed the conversation with him, and uh, I hope you do as well. Here's Pat McCabe. Um, Just a little bit, but I think it's Okay.
0: Okay. Yeah. It's it's a guy with a leaf blower right in front of my head. <laughs>
1: That's always how it goes. We I mean the amount of times we've spent hours setting up a video interview and then uh we hit, sit down to start it and the the, the yard work begins is Yeah, well
0: it was like when we were shooting the other week, you know, there was there were garbage trucks and preschools and all kinds of shit. You know?
1: Exactly. So, exactly. <laughs> I wonder if we just start going back to sort of the beginning where you're from and the early years of that, that formed Pat McCabe in, <laughs> in the world
0: right okay well I am a, I'm a native of uh, from Los Angeles um, both my parents are from Rhode Island and um, my dad went to Harvard Law School and my older brother was born in Boston um, and when he graduated Harvard Law School he he was a teacher assistant there for a year and then he came out to Los Angeles in 1955. And I was born in the next year, so I'm the second of five kids. Um, my dad was a powerhouse, pretty well known attorney here in town. He always worked for himself. Uh, he was uh, growing up in Rhode Island. He did not get a high school degree, um, and then he went in the service. He came back, um, and he got uh, the GI Bill to Brown, and he was five beta cap at Brown, and then mm-hmm. near the near the top of his class at uh, Harvard Law School. While while working the whole time, so wow. he was a pretty unusual guy. Um, Archibald Cox, the Watergate prosecutor, uh, was his faculty advisor at Harvard Law School, and I happened to sit next to him on a plane once. and And he he had said that he asked me my name. Was I related to Ted? Yes, he's my dad. And he said he was he was the smartest student he ever had in wow. however many years Harvard Law School. So. And before he died, he petitioned the state of uh, Rhode Island and and got his GED. He got his high school diploma right before he (laughs) passed away. (laughs) So uh, he was a very powerful guy. Um, I have four siblings. They're all a lot smarter than me. Uh, Two of them got two 800s on their SAT in the old days when only a dozen people in the state of California, you know. So so the other four really inherited my dad's real, real brilliance and real intellectuality. And I wasn't really that way. I was kind of a B minus student. I was a big kid. So I got into sports very early, kind of a lifelong love of sports and participating. So uh, we all went to kind of Tony private schools. Uh, I played basketball in high school and I really wanted to play in college. So I went to a little division three school in Connecticut, which was just about the only school I got into. I think my coach knew the coach there or something. And uh, my (laughs) high school coach uh, called Wesleyan University. And it it really changed my life. I mean, Mm -hmm. everybody there was like the valedictorian of the high school class. And, uh, you know, it's a small school. We played Williams and Amherst and schools like that. But, you know, really, really smart kids who were really turned on intellectually. Um, So kind of that was a good environment for me. And I really, really thought about being a teacher and a coach. My first job was coaching in a summer camp out here in Los Angeles, <clears throat> a basketball camp with, with girl counselors, which was important to me at the time. Um, <clears throat> and just playing basketball all day with kids. I couldn't believe my good fortune that you could get paid for that. It was just so outrageous. Huh. But sort of where I went wrong, and I, and I was a you know philosophy major, I think it was our call, like <laughs> know much about it. Uh, you know, I, I was really thinking about social work, being a teacher, being a coach. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, sports was everything to me. So I came back home after college, back to Los Angeles, and I didn't have anything going. And it was it was a rough summer like it is for our foster kids, for example, who graduate college and have a hard time and ready to succeed. Yeah. And so... I told my dad that I was gonna to move to New York and it was October 1st, I was gonna leave. And he said, if you don't have a job by Halloween, you're gonna to have to come back here to LA because you know they, we had a big house, there were five kids, so there was plenty of room. So I started working in New York on October 30th. So it was the first time I really had stepped away from my dad. Now, a lot of times you're motivated to do things in life because you haven't done them. If I had given it any thought, and I, did, I got into Columbia graduate school in education. I, I could have gone right and got a master's in ed and, and been a legitimate headmaster later on in my life instead of a <laughs> uh, you know, phony one like I was for 12 years, headmaster. When uh, we'll get to that. So um, I did it really to get away for independence reasons and get away from my dad. And I was making $17,000 in 1978. I worked at a textile company as a salesperson. I was just horrible, absolutely terrible salesperson um, but I did get to live in New York for several years, and my college roommates were there, and it was really, really fun. But my career was completely stalled because I, I knew I wasn't. I was, and I got a little homesick. I want to go back to Los Angeles, uh, which I did at about 25, with really nothing going then because I had this background in sales that I, that I really. <laughs> wasn't crazy about. And I really didn't know what I was going to do. So my 20s were, were really, really difficult for me. What,
1: what was the sale? What were you doing sales in?
0: Uh, textiles, okay. like uh, uniform fabrics, a, a huge company called Milliken At one time, it was one of the largest family owned companies in the country.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, so I was in New York in the late 70s, but I just did it to live in New York. I mean, I didn't I couldn't remember the style numbers. You know, I was a terrible presenter. I mean, it was just one of those things. (laughs) Like the the real Pat McCabe didn't exactly come out in textile sales, you know? (laughs) So I came home and my own two kids, I've told them, do not quit your job without a job. And that's exactly what I did. I quit my job in New York that I didn't like and was really unhappy with and came to Los Angeles thinking that, Maybe my dad could set me up in something. I really did I was just completely lost. Mm -hmm. So it took a while. And then my real first job in TV was uh, as a production assistant at HBO. I worked for a senior producer there. And I really loved it. I did it for three years and learned a lot about the cable TV business because HBO was, I think HBO started in 1975. So this is about 1980 or so. So HBO wasn't very old. There weren't that many employees. Yeah but as you know the production gig is very difficult you work two months and you're off a month and then you work four weeks and you're off six weeks and uh, i really struggled with that so my first real kind of job uh where i was following what i really wanted to do was at an ad ad agency out here in la i was 28 years old It was a friend of my dad's my dad was the guy's lawyer who who owned it so that did come true uh, in terms of getting help that way
1: yeah
0: a little white privilege there um And so I worked in an ad agency and I I had developed this expertise in cable TV and and cable TV, ESPN and USA and CNN was getting very, very popular. And I understood how the ad sales and ad buying part of it worked. So I got a tremendous uh, education um, at this ad agency, um, starting in a research department and becoming an account executive. So so that allowed me to went Sports Channel, which is part of Cablevision in New York when I was 32 years old in 1988. They were looking for someone to open the office out here to sell the Chicago Bulls and the 35 teams we had on local cable all over the country from Los Angeles. And they chose me. So I was there 12 years. Um, in that time, we bought, in the 12-year period, we bought Madison Square Garden. Madison Square Garden Network, the Knicks, and the Rangers. And so I was the head of sales in Los Angeles for MSG. Okay. So I did that for 12 years. We talked a little bit about having the Bulls in Chicago. I think we had 35 teams on local cable all over the country, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Miami, Philadelphia, Boston, New York. Uh, We had everything but NFL football, hockey, basketball, and baseball. And the bulls were like a third of our revenue in the 90s. It was just an unbelievable phenomenon. So I spent a lot of time there. Um, but I wasn't crazy, I'm back, not crazy about selling. I was always a very good manager because I, I saw myself as a teacher and a coach. My favorite mm-hmm. thing was hiring some young person right out of college and modeling and mentoring for them, which is what I do now with foster and homeless kids. So yeah. So I think one thing I've always thought about in my career after doing that and then taking over a small school when I was 45 years old, I got pretty much bought out from Cablevision. I had a lot of the stock. Rupert Murdoch bought my company, Sports Channel, um, and I was able to kind of walk away and do something else. But I always think about jobs being content and process. And... When I was selling textiles, I didn't like the process because I didn't like selling. And I certainly didn't like the content because I didn't care about the 20, <laughs> you know, 80 fabrics I was selling. No one didn't care about. It. Yeah. But uh, and then the next phase in advertising and in sports, sports and TV, just it was all about the content. I mean, the whole idea that you have 35 teams and you're trying to get advertisers interested in them. And you have to read the sports section for work. You have to be up on the teams and what's happening in the leagues and what's happening with the sponsors. And for a guy who's really into sports, there's nothing better in the world than reading the sports section for work. I mean, it doesn't get any better than that, you know. (laughs) So I arrived at a place when I was 45 or so. I had some money. My wife was a pretty prominent uh, TV producer out here. She's now an executive coach. We kind of both pivoted at the exact same time. I was really her first client. Um, I think what really summed it up for me was knowing that Fox was gonna buy Sports Channel and leading a uh, sales seminar of all my guys, mostly guys, unfortunately, at the time, and doing what's called a Myers-Briggs uh, thing, like, you know, yeah. what color is your parachute? What are you gonna be when you grow up? Yeah, yeah, and I did yeah. it for all the sales guys. and. And we were laughing and we was at a retreat or something. And I said, you know, if you're a BB, uh, you're a Green Beret. You're going to go out and get it. And that's what I really want. And then if you're a XYZ, you know, you're a B student, B minus student. And, you know, if I can hire someone better, I'm going to do that. And if you're an MM, you know, you should really be an elementary school principal. You, you have no reason to be working here. And I looked down and I was an MM. <laughs> so I'm speaking to all these people and everyone's laughing and everything. Yeah, I yeah, am, right? And I looked down and two years later, I was an elementary school principal. Wow. So somehow, some way I knew that I would become a teacher and a coach. And at that time I, where I didn't really want to go to Fox Sports, um, I wanted to do something really different. I, I met somebody who really a mentor who changed my life named Paul Cummins. Dr. Mm. Paul Cummins out here. He founded Crossroads School here in Santa Monica. He founded uh, New Road School, 6 through 12. And then he put me in a little school called Newbridge. Uh, I was, after uh, Cablevision, I was a sports agent for about 18 months, two years, and I really did not like it at all. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to take over a small school, $900 in the bank, about $300,000 in debt. Mm. So it was a big challenge. My friends really rallied around. Uh, And we were able to merge that school with New Roads School. So I am the founder of New Roads Elementary School, the K-5. through Paul Cummins and a wonderful guy named David Bryant Mm. are the founders of the 6 through 12. So I did that for 12 years as well. And then uh, my last phase has been as a social worker. The last eight years, a couple years at Covenant House, California, where I was the executive director and the CEO, I got hired out of uh, New Roads. And then with my incomparable partner, Rami LaSalle, almost six years now at Ready to Succeed, working with foster and and homeless kids, most of whom are in college, some of whom you met recently. Um, So three kind of major things, a 23 year business career that I really regret when I could have been a teacher and a coach that whole time. But the sports kind of overrode the whole thing, the content, again, if it was uh, 23 years of of geology, (laughs) yeah. It would have been a real disaster. It was only half a disaster because the content was great and the process was terrible. Gosh. So, twenty-three years there, twelve years as a headmaster, uh, really found out that schools, especially private schools, can be as political as IBM. Right. Uh, I really, it was time for me to go. Twelve years was enough. But when it was really cooking, and you're with the little kids, and I taught and coached in the high school, I started coaching girls' basketball, the varsity. Um, so I was with the little kids all day. I caught, co- I, I coached and taught the big kids in the high school. If it really works, there's nothing like being a teacher and a coach. There, mm. There's nothing like being in a school, the, the teachers are so brilliant at what they do. The families are nice. The kids are just the greatest. Um, yeah. I see them. fortunately for me, new roads was in Santa Monica out here. And, um, I, I see a kid every week that I had and I knew them when they were six and they're 21 now. And they're out of college, and it's yeah, it just and, you know I don't I don't really like this word, but it's incredibly fulfilling you know to have that thousands of kids that you've modeled and mentored for yeah so um so it's been a pretty clean twenty years twenty three years twenty years you know like like we were talking about recently uh, the so called midlife crisis I'm a huge believer in that and that crux point at forty five. Just I couldn't even imagine another corporate position. Yeah, and then to meet Paul and, and get an education. So kind of those three things, and I don't think there'll be a fourth phase for me. I think this is kind of it. This hmm. working with foster homeless kids, where by definition the least served or the underserved. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know? It seems like a seems like a a place where your passions kind of come together. There. Yeah. I, I'm really interested to hear a little bit more about, so you, you were 20, you were in your mid twenties, early twenties, coming back to New York. And you you said you, you said you were kind of lost, not really sure.
0: Yeah. It was great being with my friends. And I had a girlfriend at the time who I thought I was going to marry and it didn't work out. But, um, so the social life was unbelievable. You know, we got to go to studio 54 and we go to the Yankee games. And the problem was the work the work was terrible. And, uh, yeah. You know, a lot of my friends who were there, uh, one guy was a social worker, he still is, one guy was an investment banker, he still is, and I'm certainly not still selling textiles, you know? Yeah. But uh, it, I, I think everybody in the world should live in New York at one point. I mean, it's the greatest city in the world. And, yeah. And we'll get through this period a couple of years from now, it'll, it'll be back to what it was. And uh it, that was an incredible experience for me, but not in terms of work, you know?
1: Yeah. So did you, did you, you, you had said that, like you were interested in education, you were interested, you're thinking about social work, you had, you had thought about doing a graduate program at Columbia. And what was the reason that you didn't go that direction that you...
0: It, it was really, I was at the end of my rope in terms of being dependent on my dad and okay. I wanted financial independence, you know? Yeah. And and it's hard to believe, but in 1978, you know, my roommate came home one day and said, "I found our apartment. It's it's two bedrooms. It's right on Broadway. It's huge, and it's 270 a month." And I said, "Well, I'm not paying 270 a month. That's like <laughs> outrageous, you know." And yeah. he goes, uh, "Pat, like you don't understand. Two bedroom for 540 dollars. You know, you're making 17 grand." You're going to have a hundred dollars left over at the end of the year once we spend it, you know, going out to bars and restaurants and stuff. Yeah. And uh, and he said someday that you know people are going to pay, you know, five thousand four hundred dollars for this two bedroom. And I go that that's that's completely <laughs> wrong. That, that is such. A- and we kept our names on a lease forever. We sublet it to our friends and uh oh, man. probably right about now the rent would be about fifty four hundred a month, you know.
1: Crazy. Is that the guy who worked in finance? Yeah,
0: yeah. He Merrill Lynch and he is yeah, he was a college roommate, of mine, three year roommate. I'm gonna see him next week in Rhode Island actually. We're oh, going to great. a wedding. You know, all our all our kids, friends' kids are getting married, so we're going to all these weddings, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um but uh yeah, he was he was exactly right. He was a smart guy, you know.
1: Yeah. So that, that time then was, it, I imagine, you know, you, you spent, you had a good time, so your good social life and, <clears throat> and, and then, but you didn't, you weren't liking what you were doing. You weren't, you yeah. didn't feel, you didn't feel like you were like on your life path, maybe necessarily. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And it's something I, I tell uh, the students we work with, they're ready to succeed when they graduate. And fortunately for them, they can have five jobs. Between age 22 and 30. And we couldn't do that. If, if you, if you jumped around from job to job, late seventies, early eighties, when I was in the workforce initially, people would be very suspect of that. So that's really kind of changed. But I tell them to think really long and hard about your vocation being your avocation, you know, this idea of, of melding content and process. And if you can do that, you're going to be thrilled as I am right now with your work life. And you're going to look back on your life like I do at 65 and realize that first phase, I didn't think it out, but I was under pressure to get a job. My dad had imposed this deadline and I just took the first person, first job that would take me, you know? So Mm -hmm. I didn't give it any thought, but I, and I don't like this word either, (laughs) but the whole idea of authenticity, about really thinking about what you're about, what your interests are, and then applying that to the workplace, most 22 year olds just do not do that. You know, the, the average 22 year old like me would take a job for 20 grand over a job that paid 16 grand, even if the 16 grand job was something you were really interested in, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, um, I, I can't emphasize that enough with our kids that it's never too early to start thinking about authentic self where you are in the world, what your interests are and how you apply that to the workplace, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's really cool. The and and uh, I mean the, the the hindsight of the 23 years of being able to look back and you I mean you, you said there's some regret there of the in the corporate world, you know, of doing that instead of pursuing education or teaching. Um do you, is that is that like really genuine you feel that regret or yeah
0: yeah, I mean my first day at Milliken and Company in 19, October 30th 1978, um, I knew it was the wrong thing you know and, and I became a senior VP and I knew it was the wrong thing for me and and you're going to games and you're eating and drinking too much, you're entertaining clients and I knew that wasn't healthy for me. so I had a I had a sense the whole time that and you know when when you're in that position, what do you do? Well, you you coach every single weekend. Um mm. I, I have two kids and I've coached them a combined twenty-five times and I've coached twenty-five other teams. So oh, I'm well, pretty pretty famous in little Santa Monica market here being the coach. <laughs> Everyone calls me coach because I've had almost every single kid I think in this market at one point, you know, coaching <laughs> a team. So so I was able to kind of uh you know um quench that thirst for that by being a weekend coach, you know, but in in the end it really wasn't enough coaching nine-year-old soccer. It wasn't serious enough for me. So, um, but yeah, and and, and regret's a terrible thing. You know, I I think it's generally a good idea not to be regretful, but uh, I don't know. I, you know, I wouldn't have what I have now. If I hadn't had a corporate career Um, I wouldn't have uh, spent time with uh, Kareem and the bulls and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, so there was yeah. some, and, and I met some wonderful people along the way, but the corporate ethic, you know, the uh, turn around so I can stab you in the front type thing, which is <laughs> not for me, man. You know, I just, <laughs> when, I, when I could have been coaching nine-year-olds and, and I'm dealing with some really, really awful, awful people, you know. Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's kind of unavoidable. That's just the nature of the capitalist beast.
1: Yeah, that is the I mean I feel like that's such a difficult thing that so many people myself included kind of struggle with is that the you got to pay the bills. You got to get ahead somehow, you know, yeah. fin- financially and oftentimes the the passions or whatever that don't don't quite pay what you need in order to get ahead. Yeah,
0: you got to be willing to sacrifice. I think um one thing was really interesting because I was like king of the midline crisis, you know, people would call me out of the blue and say, can I come talk to you? And people would come in and, well, what do you do? I'm a lawyer and I really hate it. And Or I'm, a, I'm an executive at, at, at a studio and I hate it. But what I really want to do is be a fourth grade teacher. And then invariably I'd say, do you have kids? And They'd say, yeah. I go, do they go to private school? Well, yeah, of course they do. They go to private school. <laughs> Well, I got news for you, you know, senior VP at Paramount Pictures pays a little more than being a fourth grade teacher for me, (laughs) you know. Um, And occasionally people burst through. I had a guy who was literally a three-time Academy Award winner. He was a sound guy and he wanted to be a first grade teacher. And we said, okay. And he he put some money away and he was very, very seemingly sincere. And he lasted about a week or so. He was screaming, screaming at the, uh, at the first graders like, uh, (laughs) like Harvey Weinstein would scream, you know, whoever, you know, he was terrible and uh, it's what he really wanted, but he was in no way qualified or just his disposition alone disqualified him.
1: He didn't like the process.
0: No, he didn't like the process. (laughs) Right. So I think we all idealize all these things. Maybe I idealize coaching and teaching and being an influence, but I do know that, like I said, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty rewarding having worked with all these kids over the years. Yeah. But, uh, but, and then in a private school that I founded, I got pushed out politically, you know, um, Mm. where, uh, where the the board kind of came after me on some things and I sided with the wrong people and, uh, and I, I was shown the door, you know, well, I wasn't fired, but I knew that it wasn't a good situation. I had to leave, you know, so, yeah, yeah. Um, and the same at, at, uh, struggled at Covenant House, the, the staff I inherited is no longer there. Um, it was a very, very difficult situation. So you can be in these homeless shelters and private schools. Oh, that must be fabulous. And it must all be like pink pillows and dreams. And, and when it's like as political as IBM, like I say, you
1: know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, how, so I'd love to, when did you first kind of realize that idea of process and content and like kind of those things aligning, and that's kind of where you find fulfillment in what you do.
0: Yeah, I think it was in the school. Initially, I had to be a fundraiser because the school was in in trouble Um, financially, and I'm not particularly big on fundraising either. I'm pretty good at it, unfortunately for me, and unfortunately for Ready to Succeed, I guess I'm pretty good (laughs) at it. Um, Would rather not do it. What really aligned was when I became head of a a small school and it was a very difficult situation, like it was borderline going to close, the IRS was going to close it down. But I knew the first day that the content being the kids, you know, and the teachers uh, and then the process being running the school, managing it and being the head of the school was the perfect marriage of content and process going back to my corporate career, I again fortunate to be in sports, great content, just didn't like the process. So if you, you know, I tell the kids now, the foster homeless kids we work with, if you can marry the two man, it, it's going to be good and and I was 45 years old, it was a bad situation in terms of the school, but I knew it, it, that it was exactly the thing for me.
1: So can you so that? That's awesome. And and at that point, you knew it was a thing for you. What did you have doubts? Did you have you know? Was well, angry? yeah, I,
0: I didn't know anything. You know, I mean, I famously said uh, it's in that LA Times article. I, I, I didn't know a curriculum from a cucumber. You know, <laughs> so the head of the board, who was this lovely English lady, said, "Well, we we need to hire someone who knows what they're doing because you don't." You know, yeah. um, <laughs> I think I told you my great story about one of my former students. Uh, who I led into kindergarten and gave her her high school diploma. Her name's Amanda Gorman. She spoke at the most recent uh, inauguration. Yeah. And she had a severe, severe uh, uh, speech disability. Mm-hmm. And about four weeks into school, the first year i let her in at a faculty meeting, I said, well, shouldn't, and I just probably heard that day what a special needs school was about schools for kids with uh, that sort of thing. And I said, shouldn't she go to a special needs school? And the kindergarten teacher, who's still a friend of mine, very good friend of mine, she said, "Um, you used to be a sports agent, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, maybe you should think about going back and being a sports agent because we we don't give up on kids like that, and we don't turn our back on kids here at this school. And this school was here before you came, and it'll be here after you leave. And so if you have that kind of attitude, I would think seriously about going back to what you were doing. And I said, well, I guess we're going to let Amanda Gorman stay at New Road School. said, Yes, we are. (laughs) Because you don't know anything. So I heard that a lot. And and the guy they hired has become a very dear friend of mine. Initially, he said, you don't know anything. You don't know anything. I said, you work for me. And if you want to be out of here, I'd be happy to fire you, but uh, we didn't get along at all. And now I consider him to be my closest friend. He was, his name's Bruce Graham. He lives up uh, retired up in Toronto. So, um, yeah, that it, it, so it was frustrating not knowing anything. And I just threw myself into it and read everything I could about education, primary education. I, I talked to the teachers. I went to all the schools. I met with all the heads of school. I said, look, you're, this is going to sound weird, but I was a sports agent and I'm a headmaster now and, and you've been doing it for 20 years, you know, here, here are five questions for you. Can you help me? You know, mm, mm. and and the heads of school were very open to that because it was a highly unusual story, um, you know, different deal. And they, they that's that was my master's. That was my kind of uh, getting up to speed. So 12 years later, I knew an awful lot about running a school, you know? Yeah, yeah.
1: Did you have people uh, did you have to overcome um, people in your life that were kind of telling you you were crazy and is it just yeah just- yeah, I
0: mean, I think um you know another word I'm, I'm getting through all the words I don't like um, you know I, uh, friends of mine uh Pat, I think it's so cute what you're doing. Oh, you think it's cute, huh? To take over a school that's about to go under and 95 (laughs) kids will have to go to different schools and and 30 faculty are going to get fired. You think that's cute, huh? You know, (laughs) And, and the treatment within my grouping here in West LA, you can read about the West side in LA, was really like you're a dilettante, you know, like you were a big deal like we are before. And now you're like this little headmaster at this little school that's falling down in a church, you know, like what's wrong with you? Yeah. How, how can you turn your back on that? And the answer is because I could, <laughs> you know, it was like a, I was never married to it anyway. I mean, these 60, I have friends who are 65 and they're investment bankers and they're, they're working from 6am to 6pm doing deals. And I'm like, you know, you eat one dinner and you sleep in one bed. What, what are you doing? you know when you could be doing so much for so many other people um so there are you know there there are a lot of ways to think of it but i do recall that very clearly and it was 20 years ago of of being kind of like a little bit behind my back like this guy's a a dilettante you know so and
1: and you and what was the process of kind of moving through that you just
0: um you just have to have goals in your life and um and my goal was, you know, initially when I left Cablevision, I really just wanted to be a teacher and a coach. And Paul Cummins said to me, you know, you have tremendous management experience, and there's nothing wrong with being a teacher and a coach. It's it's the it's, it's the uh, it's the best thing you can do is to influence kids that way. But you have this administrative experience, you have you know fundraising experience because I've been part of a lot of nonprofits. I've been on twenty over 20 nonprofit boards in the last 35 years. Um, she, he said, you really need to run a school. And my orientation was just to my own kids' school, which are Tony Tony White schools on the West side here, um, private schools. I said, well, they're not gonna make me the head of Crossroads or Harvard Westlake or Brentwood school, these, these uh, upscale white schools out here. He said, yeah. well, there are a lot of schools that need help, Pat, if you open your eyes a little bit. Here's one, for example, and then that day, After having breakfast with him, I interviewed with the board at the school and they hired me.
1: Oh, wow. So that was, it was quick.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was at 10 o'clock. We were having a coffee and Paul Cummins said, well, is your resume up to date? I said, well, man, like I'm a master of the universe. I don't have a resume. You know, that's (laughs) for like people who work for me. And he goes, well, I put some together because the board meeting's at one o'clock and I'm recommending you to the board of this school that's about to go under and get all your friends together and get the money together and you know, we'll see if it can eventually become New Roads Lower School, which is exactly what happened two years later. So so I didn't, and then they chose me, and I was like, then it was like I went back to the people that were really important in my life. Like, is is this crazy? And everyone said, yes, it's nuts. What you're doing is insane. But if you don't do it, three different people who I really respect said the same thing. They said, if you don't do it, and if you don't seize this opportunity, you'll regret it the rest of your life. And and I think that's really true. If I just said, no, I'll go back to ESPN or Fox Sports or I'll, I'll just, you know, I, I would have really, truly regretted that. So yeah. I think everyone has this under motivation that they're not really aware of. Well, how did I end up, you know, as head of this little school? I, it's just like, well, it was just sort of meant to be, you know, and there were forces on within my life that kind of dictated that.
1: Yeah. Did, did Was your, was your, you said your wife went through a career change around the same time. Was she supporting? Yeah, she was a,
0: a big wheel. What used to be called movies of the week. There aren't that many of them around, but she produced all those for Viacom uh, Lifetime, which is still around television for women. It was called. Yeah. Yeah. And so she did, I don't know, 25 or 30. She came up through the ranks, Warner Brothers. Um, She worked for David Wolper, who was a famous documentary uh, producer, mm. Um, uh, Viacom Productions, you know, so, and she had the same feeling. She was at Lifetime and got called in by a superior who said, you know, I've been thinking a lot about this and uh, you spend way too much time on your family. Oh. <laughs> My wife said, well, I have small kids, you know, someone has to kind of show them the way. And she said, yeah, but, you know, y- you know, we have people here that are working 80 hours a week and you're working 45 and, and we can't have that. And, and by the way, you're, you're way too nice. To work in this business. Oh my gosh. And my wife said, uh, My I, I heard from someone else. She, she said, I'll, I'm just going to go get my coffee. I'll be right back. And she went and got her car keys and drove away from lifetime. You know, that was oh, wow. the end of that. So um, she had kind of looked into executive coaching, which 20 years ago was a pretty flaky endeavor. You know, you'd have uh, tennis pros who were also executive coaches and you'd have, Palm readers who are executive coaches, but she went through the coaches Institute, which is uh, out here in California and got accredited as a coach. And now uh, has heavy, heavy, mostly entertainment, individual clients um, because she understands the business and she knows the pressures those people are under. Yeah. So it's been a really, really successful transition for her also.
1: Was there some kind of like, um, just the fact that you were both doing it at the same time That you going through a transition at the same time that sort of made it in some way uh, easier to understand, like to. No, um,
0: no, because it was like a double dilettante thing, right? (laughs) Well, Nancy, I saw your new movie on Lifetime. It was well. I don't work there anymore. I'm I'm going to be an executive coach. Okay, well, can Pat get me Laker too? Well, no, Pat's Pat's the head of a little permanent (laughs) school, you know. So so there was an element of that. Like, okay, I I maybe get the one guy doing what he's doing, but both of you at the same time. I mean, what the the hell's going on? So it's not like we lost friendships. It's not like anything like that. But people really were wondering what the hell we were doing, including our parents. I think our parents were looking at it like my dad got it because my dad had taught it. At SC Law School for many, many years, and the whole idea that I wanted to be a teacher and a coach, he was—he really, in one sense, really applauded. Mm. But I think my wife's parents were like, "Okay, this is like a strange transition. You know, you you work, you do all that work to get that far, and then it's like you fall off a cliff into yeah. something else. You fall right into the ocean off the cliff, you know." Yeah. So um, I remember that clearly too, and a lot of that had to do with. I didn't go to an established school that was financially healthy and Nancy, my wife didn't take up something that was, it was all new and it was, you know, flaky is the word, you know, for coaching. I mean, yeah. so.
1: Did, was there, um, so your, so your dad was, was it, you, you felt he was supported and he, there was like this, it, you felt like you needed to get early on in life, get like a, financial independence and sort sure. of set yourself up, but later, but you're, but you found that your dad really supported this, this change.
0: Yeah. He knew I was uh, really unhappy. He, he knew like my 23 year work career looked great on paper, senior vice president, expense account, play golf with famous athletes, all that stuff. Yeah, But he knew it, it didn't make me happy. So and he knew that the lifelong goal, like anyone parent knows, the lifelong goal of the adolescent is to separate from the parents. And yeah, yeah. you'll find out later with your kids, maybe uh, yep. it's called being a teenager uh, when they literally hate you. And then you think back <laughs> to when they were a week old and you were holding them and you couldn't love anything more than that. Yeah. And then everyone hates each other when they're teenagers, you know?
1: <laughs> so,
0: uh, so I think he, he was a really smart guy and he understood that too. Um and then my mom was very much behind whatever was best for me. And if huh. the big house couldn't afford it, couldn't do this, couldn't do that, it was like that's the way it goes. You know, yeah, you yeah. got to make yourself happy. Yeah. So, so
1: how did so so twenty three years of that career uh, did, did how did how did you keep doing it? Like when you were like, like well, it, you, it, paid,
0: it paid a lot at one point. You know, yeah, pretty early on for me, it paid a lot of money. Did
1: Did you feel though throughout it? Were there, were there ebbs and flows to it where you're like, oh, yeah, I, I can – I can, if I just approach it this way, I'll be fine. I'll just keep doing it. It's worth it. I'll keep doing it. Or was it like just this thing in the back of your head that you were like, yeah, I, I don't really love doing this, but it's not that big of a deal. This is just – this is a job.
0: Yeah. I mean, when you're in the Bulls locker room after they win the NBA, that's part of your job, right? Yeah. And then – you know, the kid who you just knew wouldn't work out and you had to fire him. That was part of the job too. So yeah. um yeah, and and I think people, you know, there's ego in life and in, in 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 occupations and careers, you know. They're like you go to a party and you're working sports and you're hanging around with, you know, these guys and everyone wants to know about that, you know. But what was really interesting to me, and that was part of it, I wasn't gonna give that up easily. Yeah. And if I hadn't kind of had a financial event, I kind of wonder where I'd be if I had to go to Fox or Mm -hmm. I had to do whatever I was going to do. Um, Yeah, so it it cuts both ways. But then you're head of a private school on the West Side and everyone wants to talk about their kids in private school and how they get in and all this stuff. And you're a bigger celebrity even like a little crummy school you you're a bigger celebrity as the head of a school than you are as a sports agent i mean it's it's uncanny it's unbelievable yeah. really but uh, i think there is ego to it and, and if i'd been an accountant it would have been easier to walk away from than giving up my Lakers seats you know yeah
1: yeah sure sure if you hadn't you know taken the risk made a, made the, made a change and done something different uh kind of followed your followed your passion to see where it would go. What, where do you think you'd be right now?
0: Uh, you know, kind of a mid to upper level manager in media or an ad agency or something like that. Um, you know, there are people that live their whole lives, which is profound to me, doing something they're not crazy about. And it's almost always, always about material reward. And yeah. you get it, You get into, you know, uh, the the, the rat on the thing, I, you know, it, it, you know, it's a treadmill and, and I'm looking around at the houses in my neighborhood. There's some nice houses in this neighborhood in Santa Monica. And I'm sure some guy became a lawyer and now he's got two kids in college and that's pretty expensive. You'll find <laughs> out two, two kids in college, uh, yeah. you know, and you just get on this treadmill and you just don't think to get off, you know? So I would have had by now a 43 year, career most in sales and media, you know, that would have been my thing. And, but the championship 11, 11 year old soccer team would have been my crowning glory. It would have been my, my biggest accomplishment, you know? <laughs> uh, and I got into it one time at Cablevision, they were having like a director's something meeting. And I called the head of the company. I said, I can't come this weekend. He goes, why? And I said, because my 12 year old girl's in a major championship game soccer and i I coach the team and i can't miss the game yeah and he said i got to tell you you're the first person to ever call me and tell me something like that because people like you would just get on a plane and come out here to new york for this meeting on all day meeting on saturday and i said well i don't really care what the consequences are because i'm not missing this game (laughs) and this guy said okay but if anyone asks, you've been sick all week and you were too sick to travel because oh, he didn't want to make the exemption, you know. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, you know, I can hear it in your voice. You've been sick all week and, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm letting you uh, slide on this one, you know, like meaning if you tell anybody you're fired, you know, like yeah. I got to coach a little girls game and I'm missing the big yearly annual meeting. you know. So we kind of laughed about it. But uh, you know, I went to work the next Monday, and I my job was still there. So
1: yeah, yeah.
0: So so yeah. Anyway,
1: so is that the the is that like the culture of corporate and stuff? Is that part of the process that you did not like?
0: Yeah, I, I mean, no one likes that. I mean, you know, out here, it, 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 these bullies from the movie business, you know, Harvey Weinstein and uh, you know all these guys who are in trouble now. Everyone knew they were like that. Everyone knew he was a bully and an awful person treated people horribly. So that's, it's phony and and it's a lie. And, and the court, there are parts of the corporate life that are good. People get ahead, they make money, they provide for their families. There are all these good things that happen, but at the same time, that kind of, especially in, in high, high profile media, uh, these are some of the worst people in the world. I mean, uh, you know, um, and that's just inherent in the whole thing, you know, and uh, everyone knows it. Anyone who can read <laughs> knows that it's a terrible situation in a lot of these companies and like a lot of these phony technology companies. And, well, this is all about improving the world and connecting on Facebook. Uh, you know, it's all bullshit, you know, and they know it. They know that. You know? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So if uh, if you were to start over like say you're back in your early 20s again and you were going to do it all again, what, what would you do today? What would you sort of repeat? What would you do differently?
0: Um, I, I think it, it goes back to this authenticity. I, I stupidly could, could have had the master's in ed um, at, from Columbia. You come out of that and you get you're a teacher and a coach at whatever level you are for 10 or 15 or 20 years. And then if you're a leader, which I am, I've been the captain of every team I've ever been on. I, you know, I do, I do know about myself that I have leadership qualities. Yeah. So I would be at this point, a retired headmaster, much like <laughs> now having t- taken a pretty circuitous uh, route to it, you know, yeah. but uh, I, I think just the traditional educator thing. And I did find out that, you know, it wasn't all Mr. Chips, you know, this whole thing of uh, fundraising and fighting and, you know, Conflict and all that stuff. Yeah, but I definitely would have just had that forty-year career working with individual kids. Um, you know, and, and I and I have about half of that because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I did it for twelve years as head of a school. And and, and you know, and when a foster kid calls you on a Father's Day, I mean, you know, uh, uh, the greatest investment banker in the world doesn't have that. Yeah, you know, when you work with the the. the the, the benefits and the sidelights of working with individual kids is, is profound. So, yeah, I, I'd be the former head of school at a school out here, and uh, a legitimate school, <laughs> a real school. <laughs> instead of the, the, the freak show, I sort of inherited there. And I think if people were honest and really thought about it, it's depressing to think about. Uh, I, there, there might be a CPA over here in Century City that's really thinking about jumping out of that window because he's been a CPA for 40 years and he always hated it, you know? Yeah. So that's one extreme. And then it's the guy who's rational and says, okay, I'm married. I live in a nice house. My kids are nice kids and they they're educated and they're on their own now. And I've really accomplished something. I've provided for my family to the point where I have, uh, um, offspring that, that are independent and, and have their own lives and they have wives and kids or spouses, whatever it is. Um, so yeah. And again, does it border on regret? Yeah. Is it real regret? Probably not. You yeah, know, yeah. It's just if I really thought about it, it would just mean that I would have worked with twice as many kids. That's what Because yeah. I've been working with these students for twenty years now and that's a long time, you know? Yeah, so yeah. Might have well, told you, you know, I go down to Starbucks down the street here and a teenage girl comes up to me and says, Did you used to be Mr. McCabe? <laughs> and I said, did you used to be Olivia Mion?" And she was with her parents. <laughs> and it just happened, I had her in kindergarten. It was 12, 13 years ago.
1: Oh,
0: man. And uh, her parents are laughing. And, and she goes, well, I, I still am Olivia Mion." And I said, well, I still am Mr. McKay. So it's nice <laughs> to see you, you know? So it's like that kind of interaction. You just, you can't buy. You can't buy that.
1: Your, your thought on process, you know, process versus content and or that both, both of those aligning, I, um, do you have any thoughts on how you determine whether it's worth trying to change the process so that it's something that you like, or whether it's worth changing your environment to go to somewhere where a process is?
0: Yeah. Well maybe selling textiles and selling the Chicago Bulls are two different things, right? Yeah. So I certainly wasn't going to get very far, <laughs> textile. But <laughs> yeah, I had right, some right. real success selling the Chicago Bulls. Now, could anybody who basic who could speak and talk sell the Chicago Bulls in the nineties? Yes, but it happened to be me. You know, <laughs> fortunately, it was for me. So yeah, I like that idea of just changing the changing up the content. You know, um, plenty of teachers middle school teacher really struggles middle school. Wow. These kids are literally in the middle. They're not little and they're not big. Yeah. And then a friend of mine, someone who worked for me and then became a uh, college professor loves it. Got, got, went back, got a doctorate. And so it just change the content a little bit, right? Alter yeah. the content. The process is harder to change um, because you're still teaching and you're still grading papers and all that yeah. kind of drudgery. But, um, yeah i mean that's why i think marrying the vocation with the avocation is so important now i I used to have a a very open door and young people would come in and they'd sit in my office and i'd say why do you want to work in sports and they'd say well mr mccabe i read the sports section every day the newspaper i read it every single day and i had a statistics uh, from an article in usa today that males between 18 and 49 over 30 million people, males, 1849, read the news. Read the sports every day. <laughs> I said, okay, I get it. I get what you're saying, but how are you going to differentiate yourself from these 30 million people who do just what you told me? You know, how, how does that differentiate? And that would just stop them in their tracks, and I would kind of bring them back around to the idea that you had to kind of narrow in a little bit. You can't just say, well, I really want to work in sports. It's, it's Sports is a lot of different things, as is media especially nowadays so um so yeah the content can always change but the process at the end of the day nobody rides for free and no one's going to pay you a lot of money unless you're uh, productive right so the process is always going to be the process but i like that idea the content could be ever-changing
1: it's really cool well i I, um you know just talking to you again it's really clear how uh, just how much you, you have, you do sort of enjoy, you know, your work. You're working with kids and developing younger people. And it's um, really, yeah, it's really cool to see that. Like, it's just very, very clear. It's not yeah, even- well,
0: thank you. And you saw it up close. I mean, the, the end product, these students, I mean, I can't believe it. What an unbelievable privilege to work with them. It's just absolutely remarkable. But I also think, like, in terms of for myself, that I certainly like this a lot better than selling textiles and I'm doing it for myself as well. It's always a two-way street, especially when you work with underserved, truly underrepresented students, kids. Um, You have to have a realization that you're helping them. It's a positive thing, um, but you're doing it for yourself. Anybody who I really, truly respect in this market, I have some real heroes in this market, um, they would tell you the same thing, that they're doing it for themselves, and uh, that's an important realization, also. Hmm.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense.
0: It's never too late, you know. Everyone gets in a rut with work, and everyone gets kind of weighed down with details and all that kind of stuff. And uh, it's good to kind of, you know, take a side street. You know, it's good.
1: Yeah, yeah. This is this is me, uh, maybe the like the coaching uh, coaching coach little league or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thanks, Pat. Okay, man. Have a good day. See you soon. you can learn more about pat's work with ready to succeed at ReadyToSucceedLA.org. All one word, readytosucceedLA.org. They're doing really amazing work empowering foster students to graduate college and have successful careers and are believing in these students to reach their full potential and support them in whatever way possible to do that. Really amazing to witness it. And um, yeah, I really encourage you to check it out. There's a couple videos on their website as well that you can see on there that the company I work for created as I'm editing these conversations, I'm learning a lot about myself as an interviewer. (laughs) I'm used to interviewing people for documentary films where my voice is always cut out of the end product. And so what I say and how I say it isn't really under much of a microscope. I always thought of myself as a really good interviewer. And that was, I think that's part of how I formed my view of myself, that I could connect really well with people and you know, in a special way. And and I thought that somehow that made me special. Um, but there are definitely a lot of cringe worthy (laughs) moments in these interviews and they're all my contributions to the conversations. Um, but that's, I think that's partly why I love doing this because this is, I'm really, this is a process. Um, I'm, I'm learning and I'm getting better. It's painful and it's quite humbling, but, um, Get, that's what's necessary for growth I feel like I should be i should know that intuitively by now but for whatever reason I don't um it's not intuitive <laughs> and that's partly why i wanted to quit a million times I, I want to learn it through this process that failure is progress rather than than some judgment on who I am it's not failure isn't shame it's it's you know growth is hard but that that's what i want so i'm doing it here on this podcast in real time (laughs) all right that is it for this week see you next week